I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mayo Lab Podcast. And we're so excited today to have two very special guests with us in the studio, Susan Stellan and Graham McIndoe. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great you, to be here. Um, you guys have been in Oxford um, for a couple of days now, but you are originally or are from New York right now. So why don't you both, whoever wants to go first, just give a little bit of your professional background um, and kind of how you got to Oxford right now. Do you want to start, Graham? I'll start, yeah. Um, my professional background is uh, I'm a photographer. I'm a documentary and portrait photographer, and uh, I'm also a professor of photography at Parsons and New School in New York City. And Susan and I curated an exhibition there in 2019 called uh, Beyond Addiction, Reframing Recovery, which subsequently went to RIT, which was uh, organized by Josh Meltzer and is now here and part of the reason that we are now here in Oxford. Yeah, and I started my career working in journalism, mostly for the New York Times, and um, helped the New York Times set up their website at the time and kind of worked as a journalist um, covering different topics for many years. And then just before the pandemic, went back to school for a public health degree and, you know, was interested in the topic of substance use and addiction. So kind of migrated. I'd also been teaching um, ethics in the history of journalism, mm -hmm. but started kind of focusing on, you know, substance use as a topic and how we can shift more toward health-centered responses to substance use and kind of the crossover with mental health as well. Um, and then worked with Graham, you know, we're married and um, collaborate on projects together. So I've come out of the words background. He comes out of phot photography and images. So a lot of our collaborations, including this exhibition, are, you know, kind of how can we use both images and text to tell stories mm -hmm. um, about the topic that, you know, many people just out in the world and media coverage, entertainment, see addiction represented, but not so much the pathways to recovery mm -hmm. and the many different pathways. Mm -hmm. So we curated this exhibition, you know, reaching out to other uh, photographers and artists and writers um, looking for work that kind of explored that topic. And I know there's a little bit deeper reasons of why this is such an important exhibition for you both. And the photos are just outstanding um the, the website you guys have doesn't even do them justice and meg and i both have gotten mm -hmm. to see them in person it's it's it gives me chills when i think about it but how did you land on this exhibit curating it and then also the title i'm fascinated to know how you guys landed on the title well, just to start backwards, um, I think, you know, sometimes we shorten it to reframing recovery, but I think having that beyond addiction reframing recovery um, really kind of captures what we were thinking about in terms of let's move the conversation and people's thinking beyond addiction and think about how we can expand people's um, thoughts about recovery. Um, sometimes 
like to say, you know, we've all recovered from something, especially now coming out of the pandemic mm -hmm. and whether it's an illness, an injury, um, a natural disaster, um, anyone can relate to recovery. And some of the common themes are, you know, it always takes longer than you think it will. Mm -hmm. There are setbacks along the way. Um, so really that title, and we were very fortunate to have a friend at Pentagram Design help us with the mm -hmm. logo, kind of captures, you know, that mm -hmm. idea of shifting to looking at, you know, the process of, you know, what helps people and what helps different people. Mm -hmm. um, and then Graham can kind of talk about how naive we were when we thought about, oh, let's curate an exhibition, you know, <laughs> how hard can that be? Yeah, I, as part of my, you know, being a professor at Parsons, these opportunities pop up every so often mm -hmm. for faculty resource grants or, mm -hmm. you know, exhibition curations. And I, I knew there was one in the main galleries. We have two beautiful big galleries on Fifth Avenue in New mm -hmm. York, which are amazing to yeah. have. And so the one that's right on Fifth Avenue, they uh, have a an open call for faculty and st students, actually, to propose an exhibition to be curated by you. And they throw a little bit of money at you. And I thought, oh, that can't be that hard. You know, I mean, let's do something about addiction and recovery or harm reduction, you know. So... I wrote this proposal and Susan helped me with that and I submitted it and I got through to the second round and I said, oh, yeah, I went to the second round. I went and met with them and I eventually got it and I thought, yeah, we can just do an open call, get a bunch of pictures, stick them on the wall. I take my hat off to curators, you know, it is nowhere near as easy as you would think, you know, I mean, just finding, you know, just, just finding the variety of people, mm -hmm. variety of subject matters, variety of, like, approaches, and then with the open call, we just, we just got so many people just sending us pictures of addicts and active addiction, and I'd very clearly said we want right across the gamut but we're looking at solutions mm -hmm. not the problem we know the problem exists we're looking mm -hmm. at what are the solutions how do we go beyond addiction yeah. and look at different pathways whether it's medically assisted treatment whether it's harm reduction you know whether it's full on 12 step is it art therapy what, what was the thing and so it did take a lot of outreach, you know, to really pull in a really diverse crowd. And I d d taught a class as well to get students involved in it and collaborated with a woman called Julia Gorton, who had a design uh, class. So we worked with some uh, designers as well. And so we ended up with sort of multimedia and hmm. then we ended up doing an open call on Facebook. And that's how we met Josh, who's been very involved with it since. Mm -hmm. um, friends on Facebook was a, a co-faculty of his. And I didn't really know his work. I knew his name a little bit. Mm -hmm. And she said, you need to talk to Josh. And he'd worked with Bess Macy. So it kind of rolled on from there, you know, mm -hmm. and it's been building on that. Every time we have a, re a different iteration mm -hmm. of it, we build on who's in it and try to get student participation and mm -hmm. And also community activity, uh, participation as well, so that it's sort of relevant to the place you're bringing it. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to dive in a little bit more on kind of like what distinguishes those the the imagery for folks who are in active addiction, and and you alluded to this season two about kind of what we see in the media versus some of the imagery that you have presented as part of this exhibit because they are, I would say, in my object, like diametrically opposed from each other. Like they're don't they're not the same. They might be the same people, but they're not the same images. And there's like a a sense of hopefulness and um, really kind of like forward lookingness in the imagery that you've put together in your exhibition in comparison to some of those other images that you see of folks who are in active addiction. As you said, it's real, but like from for you all as you were putting that original exhibition together, what distinguished those two buckets of images from each other? 
Well, we're kind of trying to think of it a bit more as a continuum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so sometimes things get put in the binary and kind of trying not to, you know, to to represent the pathways that people take. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are, it's not here, but, you know, one of the projects we showed was someone who'd worked in harm reduction. So, you know, distributing clean syringes Mm -hmm. in New York City decades ago and still had all these snapshots. So Mm -hmm. we, from that time, Mm -hmm. so we put those under a glass covered table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of represented, you know, also people who are trying to help. Mm -hmm. And Josh Meltzer's photography, you know, focuses a lot on, you know, some people, whether they're in treatment or medical providers or nurses Mm -hmm. or, you know, recovery support people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not that there isn't active addiction represented, but it's sort of reframing, you know, what imagery can we show Mm -hmm. about that? And then also um, another project where, you know, part of our goal was to prioritize people who have either personal experience with this topic Mm -hmm. as artists um, or people who had deeper engagement with the participants that they were photographing Mm -hmm. or working with. So, you know, there's a photography project that kind of, documents the journey of a young woman and you see the difference in the photographs um the photographer is tony foos as her evolution Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. as she seeks help and gets treatment so really trying to show that as a continuum Mm -hmm. um but not not the kind of same images that you see particularly in news media Mm -hmm. that you know just mostly illustrate kind of the mayhem and and really the public side of addiction where, you know, it's people outdoors in parks or on the Mm -hmm. street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I could just add to that, it's just there's a big gray area that gets overlooked between active addiction and what you see in the Mm -hmm. press and Mm -hmm. what's often seen as, you Mm -hmm. know, people who have an opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. As Susan said, they're in the street, they're in the open, they're using needles, it's dirty, it's grimy. And then you've got that sort of media representation. They say, oh, I went to his toss out meeting and now I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a whole big Mm -hmm. gray area Mm -hmm. in there of people trying, people using different ways, setbacks, struggles. For some it's easy, for some it's hard, for some it takes a few attempts you know mm-hmm. so it's just trying to cover all those little things to make people mm-hmm. understand that you know there's no magic bullet there's mm-hmm. no a quick mm-hmm. click and mm-hmm. that's it you know mm-hmm. I mean for a lot of people it takes a lot of attempts and for some people it means using medically assisted treatments for many many years mm-hmm. to get themselves stabilized which is great for mm-hmm. some it's you know a harm reduction approach you know so you know it's just trying to cover all those little things to show mm-hmm. that it's a it's a bigger topic than people think and there's mm-hmm. not just a these two points of right. entry and departure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would like to pick up because at the at the talk that you all gave earlier this week, you, Graham, you talked about kind of this, the gray area around harm reduction, right? Like this idea that clean needle exchanges and, and those kind of things are really great for making sure folks are safe in the midst of it. But you, you made a comment about that not being in and of itself sufficient, right? Like that there needs to be a step after that, that we're getting folks into treatment. So I'd like for you all to continue to be in that gray zone for a second and talk uh, talk us through, talk our audience through, what does that mean from from your ex- experience and your kind of observation and work in this space? I think I'll start just because, you know, in the work I do, I also do a lot of training workshops, kind of mm-hmm. working with providers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the workshops I teach is called Building Bridges Between Harm Reduction and Treatment. Mm-hmm. And treatment is... I view it broadly. It's Mm -hmm. care for people who, Mm -hmm. you know, not only often have substance use problems, but also mental health, housing challenges, you know, criminal Mm -hmm. legal system involvement. And I think it's, you know, shifting, you know, harm reduction as an approach that, you know, is 
a process of engaging with people, but then also how can we kind of incentivize and nudge and make it easier for people to access, you know, whatever treatment they're interested in that might be helpful to them that's available. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's helping people get the IDs that they need Mm -hmm. to get them signed up for Medicaid or benefits Mm -hmm. that would cover these services. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, sometimes I think Graham mentioned, you know, meet people where they're at, Mm -hmm. but don't leave them there, you know, and I phrase it as meet people where they're at and then help them get to where they want to be, Mm -hmm. you know, and the work that we do, which maybe Graham can talk about, you know, with um, a community-based organization called Vocal, which is in New York, but also has chapters in Texas and Kentucky, Mm. you know, we do an art and storytelling group there um, that we've just kind of restarted where you really get to hear from people, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. they're writing, they're making art about, Mm -hmm. you know, their lives and what they feel would help them. Mm Yeah, I mean, just as, as Susan said, you know, the the line for that always resonates with me for harm reduction is meet people where they're at, but don't leave them where they're at. You know, mm-hmm. so it's meeting people where they're at, giving mm-hmm. them the things to keep them safe, and hopefully they'll make that decision and move along. And it's really just about funding and help that people need. They need the wraparound services. Mm-hmm. They need the housing. People mm-hmm. can't pull themselves up by the bootstraps when they're that low down. And there's always this thing, well, just pick yourself up, you mm-hmm. know. And it's difficult for somebody who's been traumatized by addiction mm-hmm. or incarceration or being houseless or any of these or mm-hmm. any of these things so you know i mean the workshop that susan and i do and i had previously done uh, before the pandemic was it, it it was and i've been through addiction and recovery and been around that a lot but it was uh, it was very humbling to me mm-hmm. you know those things that people share they, they open up very very much mm-hmm. You know, about their personal experiences, what they've been through, what they would change in their life at this stage if if mm-hmm. they could and mm-hmm. what they would hope to change to mm-hmm. bring to be the thing, as Susan says, what, what could bring you to be the person you want to be? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the, those things are all important. Again, gray areas. But, you know, when you're dealing with real people in real situations mm-hmm. and you hear their stories, there was a woman last week who shared about, with us about she was, you know, coming off an opioid you know addiction and she was four or five days in Mm -hmm. and she wrote a a little piece about it and read it to us in the class and she cried the whole way Mm -hmm. through it Mm -hmm. and it was just it's it's very humbling it's very emotional you know Mm -hmm. but it's also very cathartic for people to be able to be in that environment and share and talk about their hopes and what they really want moving ahead Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm And I think one of the things that struck me again from this discussion that we're having here and and the the, the talk that we gave earlier this week is, and I'd like to hear from you, Susan, on kind of your thought on this as as an MPH, Mm -hmm. um, a person with with a master's in public health, is the politicization of the term harm reduction, mm-hmm. right? And in where we are in Mississippi, that's a complicated term. If you're talking to folks, and, and we've done this in our work around the state, you know, n- nobody's averse to getting people help who need help, right? Like the, But you suddenly wrap that in or ter- talk about the idea of harm reduction and that becomes a different kind of conversation. And so I'd be curious to know, because there's still a lot of stigma attached to addiction and, and all of these different things, how do you all approach that in your work? Um, in advocating for folks who might not have an opportunity or the capacity at any given moment in time to to be advocates for themselves. We kind of like to say, you know, it, it is a field that can have a lot of divisions in it. Mm-hmm. And then when you mm-hmm. add in public opinion or public policy, those are exacerbated, right? You know, whether it's about harm reduction or decriminalization kind of topics. So 
we just say we support it all. You mm-hmm. know, we're not necessarily on one team. You know, we mm-hmm. can go into venues where we're talking about recovery support mm-hmm. or treatment, you know, with medications mm-hmm. or other behavioral health approaches. We can talk about harm reduction. So for me, it's kind of how can we foster more opportunities for people to learn mm-hmm. about things that they might think they know but don't really know. You right. know, how has harm reduction evolved or how do people understand it? And the definitions, you know, some of the work I do, I show different definitions mm-hmm. of harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And there was one from um, a young woman that we'd interviewed and she had, you know, experience of addiction in her family and, you know, talked about to her harm reduction means, you know, that there's services and support out there for the parent so it doesn't fall on the child. Mm-hmm. Because when you stigmatize the parent and don't offer them help, that's where it ends up. And I'm, you know, paraphrasing a little bit, but it blew me away to think about it that way. And I thought, I've never heard anybody with a PhD or, you know, Uh executive director of an organization Uh frame it the way she did. But Mm -hmm. that was just really powerful to think Mm -hmm. about harm reduction from the perspective of a child, you know, or a young adult kind of dealing with a family member that they care about that they want to help and if there aren't these other resources engaging that person you know and she talked about her mom being in recovery now Mm. but her mom's partner you know not having found that path and dying you know so she really had seen you know Um, different sides of it wow no, I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, this is part of the power of of that storytelling component mm-hmm. and engaging with the folks like you all have and, and will continue to do with folks who are in that space living that life. Because you're right, a person with a PhD, that we don't often get the opportunity to to be on the ground, so to speak, with those people because that's just not how our lives are often designed or, you know um, – And, and I if really, I can just add, yeah, yeah. too, we were able to include that, you know, with – her permission, along with the other people we featured, on a banner that was part of a photography mm-hmm. public art show in New York City in Brooklyn Bridge Park. So, mm, cool. you know, to to watch people walk around, you know, yeah. their different peers here and see the words and the photographs, yeah. um, you know, so to take that into places that, mm-hmm. you know, might be unexpected, but someone might be walking by with their kids to a soccer game or Mm -hmm. someone might be jogging or walking their dog. So, you know, it was really great to go back to her and say, hey, this Mm -hmm. is where we'd like to put this and, you know, and the feeling that that gave her. Yeah, absolutely. And what's that been like? Because you guys have had this in a few places and spaces to see people maybe walk by, take a second lap and, you know, just watch them interact or see how they respond to the art and the words. What's that been like for both of you? Um, for me, it's rewarding because you get people that might not have thought about it twice mm-hmm. coming in, engaging with it, and it resonates with them. And they say, "Oh, this is, I never thought about this aspect. I never mm-hmm. thought about that." And the other thing is, you get people who come in and they look around and they read the stories, read the text, look at the pictures, and then it, it gives them the strength and power to talk about. A family member that they might. We've had so many people come up to us and say, I've never told anyone this before or I've never really shared this, but my sister, brother, aunt, Mm -hmm. daughter, you know, and I had a number of people reach out to me, especially after the New York Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, parents of younger kids, you know, in their teens or early 20s saying to me, listen, my son has really, he's got a problem that's not extreme yet, but I would really appreciate it if you could talk to him, Mm -hmm. you know, and just sit down with him. Because I think for someone like me who's lived through that Mm -hmm. and uh, 
that lived experience mm-hmm. thing resonates with people who are still in active addiction or mm-hmm. are, are mm-hmm. still struggling. They want to hear from someone. They don't want to hear from a doctor or an academic because they don't think they really know no. or understand. Mm-hmm. They do in some aspects, but when it comes down to someone who's mm-hmm. lived through it, and I have a pretty, you know, gritty story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I sit down and talk to them and tell them, that, you know, listen to them and what they've got to say. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work all the time. There's been people I've been introduced to who've relapsed. There's been people who've died. But mm-hmm. there have been many who've, you know, really taken it on and recovered and, mm-hmm. you know, moved on in their lives. Their parents are grateful. They're grateful. I keep in touch with them, you know. Mm-hmm. And that for me is fulfilling. Mm-hmm. You know, when I see somebody being, having the potential, when I see that parent having the kid back in their life mm-hmm. that they're just like, now he's the, you know, this is really rewarding mm-hmm. for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's tough and it's hard and it takes mm-hmm. time. And as Susan said, there's setbacks and relapses and things on the, mm-hmm. on the way, you know. Mm-hmm. Nothing's really smooth, you know, mm-hmm. just like life itself mm-hmm. but you know it, it does happen so you know I mean that's the most important thing for me mm-hmm. is that engagement from mm-hmm. people that might not necessarily come to that sort of stuff or might not necessarily open up to someone mm-hmm. about that sort of mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and even here just you know that fulfillment you get I mean someone was walking by as we were installing it and I thought who, who worked um, on campus and I thought, you know, kind of pausing and really taking it in and then, you know, disclosed that they were in recovery Mm. and, you know, just and thanking us Mm -hmm. and for that and just, you know, that and even even (laughs) the students, you know, the classes that we visited, um, I think really noticing that as the years go by, there's more openness Mm -hmm. if you give people an opportunity to Mm -hmm. talk about it, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a family member, a friend, their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think art and something like an exhibition or an event um, can be such a great way to bring this topic in. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first exhibit we did in New York City, you know, some of the people featured in the our project and other projects were able to come see it. Mm, And one woman just was kind of standing there and she just was looking at the wall and she goes, those are my words, (laughs) you know, and what a great feeling to be able to let someone feel that, you know, how they were describing their experience. Mm -hmm. Um, was on a wall in a gallery in New York City. And, you know, someone who grew up, you know, in public housing and would not necessarily have had that opportunity to be on the wall Mm -hmm. at, you know, a major museum, but still, you know, really appreciated that. That's very cool. That is very cool. You are listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. And one thing you said, Graham, at the event that I just love is so many people think recovery is boring, but you're like, I think addiction is more boring. Can you speak to that a little bit? And like, I'm kind of paraphrasing, I think, too, also. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've said that a few times, yeah. you know, it's like, because people, people do say that, you know, because there's a certain, the way that addiction is depicted in the media yeah. and in music and in songs and mm-hmm. stuff like that, it's got a certain swagger or a certain, mm-hmm. certain like, you know, you watch Euphoria or you mm-hmm. listen to certain songs or you, you know, even Breaking yeah. Bad, it's, it's as grim mm-hmm. as it is at the end, you know, there's a certain yeah. sort of mm-hmm. romanticism mm-hmm. and sort of coolness with the drug sure. thing, yeah, yeah, we got this, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just a tiny wee bit. Yeah, yeah. The rest mm-hmm. of it is pretty mundane because once it becomes an addiction or a dependency, you, you, your life's dictated by finding that drug. Mm-hmm. Mine was for many years. You know, It was the first thing on my mind when I woke up in the morning. It was the last thing on my mind when I went to bed and it dictated most of my waking hours. Mm-hmm. Or I was just coming down from it or 
lazing around in it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it is because you give up all the. I gave up all the things that I cared about and loved. You know, like I get. I was a track and cross country runner for years. I gave up that. I gave up relationships and friendships. I gave up really taking photographs. I gave up going to galleries, going to movies, mm-hmm. engaging with friends my life became this tiny little thing and that's mm-hmm. totally boring. Mm-hmm. It was drugs. Mm-hmm. And then as I got better, all these things came back to me. My, my life is so full right now mm-hmm. of stuff to, to do and th- mm-hmm. people to meet and engaging opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I was an active mm-hmm. you know, addict. It just wouldn't have happened for me you know and I think it's because it's a gradual slide into that for a lot of people mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like in the beginning it was great I won't lie it was there was a certain euphoria mm-hmm. there was a certain feeling of, it's kind of cool I was in a business where a lot of people were using it and there was that sort of like yeah this is all good and it is all good for a little bit until it's not mm-hmm. and if you can't pull yourself off of that precipice and you start going down mm-hmm. like I did I mean I used with people who pulled themselves back mm-hmm. I didn't I just kept going and then it's it's really hard because you're in denial for so long and then once you're out of the denial, you're in shame and once mm-hmm. you're in shame, you're isolated and mm-hmm. once you're isolated, it's it's just snowballs, mm-hmm. you know, and then you end up in that position where it's like, it's all consuming mm-hmm. and that to me was kind of a boring and, and traumatic mm-hmm. way of living, you know, mm-hmm. it's just because it's, it's repeated every single day, mm-hmm. it's just the same day, every yeah. day. And as you said, there's so much depicted in society and culture and so how do you guys, other than this exhibit, like want to combat that or hope that this exhibit does help combat that or working mm-hmm. with others does help combat that? Yeah, I think it's finding what are those venues that you can, you know, everybody's talking in public health circles about stigma, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you attack stigma? And I sometimes say, well, that's a very broad, vague term. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you break mm-hmm. that down? Is it more about misperceptions, mm-hmm. you know? And in, I've kind of landed on, you know, work, I'm doing with Graham and Josh and, you know, some of the training elsewhere that asking people, how did you learn about drug use, addiction, treatment and recovery? Like, think about all the sources that Mm -hmm, shaped mm -hmm. your views. And it's a really great question to lead into some of this Mm -hmm. because if you kind of prompt, you know, and thinking about popular culture and movies and film and books and social media and personal Mm -hmm. experience, and you can kind of draw out all these different things. So then to kind of think about, okay, what are the messages that people absorb from that? Mm -hmm. And are they true? Mm -hmm. And then how do you kind of, and maybe they were things that people really felt at the time Mm -hmm. um, that we were growing up, but now looking back, you know, thinking that helping someone is just enabling them is not something that's really done in the treatment industry Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's much more effort to support families Mm -hmm. and, you know, families kind of broadly defined. It might be a friend, it might be an ex like me, in terms of my relationship with Graham at the time um, when I was helping him. And, you know, the idea that recovery is rare, you know, that's mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people do recover mm-hmm. as fuzzy as the statistics are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of finding opportunities to take those messages out, whether mm-hmm. it's through public art, whether it's through workshops, you know, the art and storytelling group mm-hmm. um, or interviews in the media, just where are the creative places you can take that and start having those conversations? Mm-hmm. It's like meeting people where they are, where they're consuming that. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's fascinating because where the, it's at on campus is a place that is so well-patterned and trafficked. Like mm-hmm. so many people walk through there and walk around there 
And like, I don't think so. I think everyone that would have saw it this week wouldn't have gone somewhere to see it. Maybe it would. Mm-hmm. They they just happened to be having their normal pattern to class. And mm-hmm. I know I told I shared with them. I used to sit in that lounge like weekly, daily, mm-hmm. sometimes when I was an undergrad. And so I would have ended up looking at whatever mm-hmm. was on the wall around there. And so just meeting people where they are, it's less invasive in a way. It's just it's more welcoming to them, which I just I love to see and I love to hear. And I love that you guys are talking with other students and like the rising journalists and the rising photographers coming up and teaching them. And one thing I know Josh isn't here, um, but he said that, you know, people thought, you know, it had to be this big grand thing recovery did like this big hill you climb, this big peak. But he was like someone, something as mundane as keys. And that Mm -hmm. was so important to someone because those keys represented, you know, a house, AA meetings they were unlocking, you know, trust that people had rebuilt with them. And anyone would look at a key and just say, oh, that, you know, we all have keys. Well, and we don't all have keys. Mm -hmm. And that to someone was so important. And that just hit me so hard of we all have a story and it doesn't have to be this big, grand thing, but we Mm -hmm. all have words to share. We all can meet people and share with other people. And so thank you for doing that here also. Yeah, that project is um, actually by a Scottish social worker, Neil Snedden. So just to expand on (laughs) what Alexis is saying, that he gave disposable cameras to some of the people he was working with Mm. and asked them to photograph something that, that was meaningful in their recovery and then wrote something about it. So that person wrote about having a set of keys. Someone else wrote about their dog mm-hmm. and had a photo of a dog, someone mm-hmm. else, and, you know, a bag of groceries. So mm-hmm. that project is here um, and is one that really resonates with people. So when we think about, gosh, how do you show recovery in a different way, mm-hmm. visually and mm-hmm. through text, um, that's been a really creative approach that I think has connected with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yep. You guys wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that came to be, that process? Um, and we'll have it linked for everyone. We have it on our mm-hmm. list to order right now, yes, we so can. we're excited. But mm-hmm. will you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so originally, you know, I'd come out of, you know, long career writing and um, had felt like, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is kind of Graham's pathway through incarceration and also immigration detention mm-hmm. because he had a green card and was a legal permanent resident, but because of his misdemeanor drug possession convictions ended up in, you know, first Rikers Island and then in deportation proceedings. So for us, you know, as after he got out and he did win his case and eventually now has Mm -hmm. dual citizenship, we really, you know, that pathway through, you know, the criminal legal system and then immigration detention was really important for us to write about. So originally, I was going to try to write a book. And then as we kind of got into it, it it felt like, well, maybe this should be a dual memoir, you Mm -hmm. know, because Mm -hmm. it's so important to see it from the two Mm -hmm. perspectives. So that's what we ended up shaping our proposal around and some sample chapters and, you know, probably was, I'd say, the hardest thing we've done together. You know, I wouldn't recommend writing a book with your partner, (laughs) a memoir about some of the most traumatic experiences you've been through. That's fair. Um, We bodied heads a few times. Well, just the places that I, you know, had to kind of nudge Graham to go to access Yeah, I had that. to go kind of deep into things that had sort of blocked off, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, past drug use, incarceration, stuff like that. That You know, I'm obviously 
I'd lived through it and been through it, yeah. but this was quite early in my recovery as well. So it wasn't mm. a place I was too comfortable going back to that quickly, but I didn't have a chance, choice because we had a deadline <laughs> and random house <laughs> like to, kick to keep to their deadlines. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, there was a few moments that were really tough for me where mm, I had to, sure. you know, we had an editor who kept telling me, tell me what that really felt like. And I'm like, I just did. And he goes, no, go deeper. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know, the weird thing about it was that at that time and I, I did, it does happen occasionally I, I started getting these drug f dream flashbacks like mm. i'd wake up i'd have these drug dreams like i'd been thinking so much about it and writing so much about it that i'd be in my sleep i'd be like i'd, I'd wake up in a panic thinking that i'd mm -hmm. relapsed and it would take me like five minutes to realize that oh it was oh, just a dream yeah. but i'd i'd be shaking and sweating occasionally you know because yeah. they were so visceral mm -hmm. for me because i was going so deep with some of those things so yeah i mean I'm glad we did it, and a lot, so many people reached out and read mm -hmm. it and said yeah. that it, it, it written us about what it meant to them, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, was all these things at the end of the day, if you get a, a handful, a dozen, two dozen people, that it changes their mm -hmm. perception, it changes their lives, they think differently about a group of people they wouldn't have thought about, it nudges them. It, try and address an issue with a family member or something like that, it's worth it. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. absolutely worth it. You know, we're not trying to reshape the wheel or anything like that. We're just trying to make some people find something in life mm -hmm. that might not have been there before they read the book or saw the exhibition. That's amazing. Yeah. And I love the idea of this kind of like one one person to one person or a small group of people. Because really, like you've talked about, this is not – if it were an easy problem to solve, somebody else would have solved it already. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. making those tiny little steps forward and, and, and having that ripple effect of getting out and getting out further um, is such a powerful message mm -hmm. for us to be thinking about in this space because it is a mm -hmm. big problem and it has grown, unfortunately, in the last few years again in a way that we couldn't have anticipated before. Um, and so I like that that brings it down to me. It brings it down to something that's manageable. Like we can, I can help influence mm -hmm the people around me and hopefully they can be empowered to influence the people around them. And if we get enough of that going on, we'll, we'll make mm -hmm. a bigger dent in this than we would if we're just like, oh, throw up our hands, we're like, mm -hmm. oh, there's nothing we can do. Or, you know, relying on solutions that may or may not be practical mm -hmm. or feasible for, for everyone to be rallied mm -hmm. around. I know you both have a lot of personal experience and connection to this, what you do every day. Is there challenges still day to day that come up for you guys? Like, having lived through some of these things and still working with this community, is there struggles at all that come up? And how, if there are, how do you guys move and work through them? I'm going to connect that question to a little bit of follow-up oh, yes. on the previous topic, which is, you know, I think that my perspective was interesting to see how it resonated with people because within this realm, you know, I, I sometimes call it like our relationship, it was a relationship of choice, right? Mm -hmm. it, Graham was my ex, you know, I was still involved in his life. But even, you know, when we were together and not together, we don't hear as much about that mm -hmm. as we do about dealing with someone who's a child or a parent or a sibling, right. you know, a family member that you're tied to in mm -hmm. some sense, you know, and and there'd been so much messaging about tough love mm -hmm. that people had absorbed and they felt like, well, this is what everybody's telling us. And you know, that I think continues to be interesting to hear from mm -hmm. people because for me, one of the challenges was, you know, that people would write in comments or, you know, reviews of the book or other settings that we've talked in, you know, well, that the message is stand by your man. And I was like, well, you know, first of all, <laughs> we kind of work together. And if you've never been touched by the criminal legal system, it's really hard to understand, mm -hmm. like, just that your instinct is like, 
don't let this person languish, you know, right. whether it's at Rikers Island or immigration detention, um, that that adds a different layer to mm-hmm. just this is mm. someone in active addiction. So I think recognizing that, you know, within the realm of families broadly defined in personal relationships, you know, often it, maybe it's a grandparent, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's a partner, maybe it's an ex, but, you know, helping people navigate that, like, should I stay or should I go? Or like, mm-hmm. how much should I give? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that still comes up that mm-hmm. I was surprised by how much people judged me, mm-hmm. you know, either as not feminist enough or, you know, just wow. not understanding, as Graham said, you know, like, why did you do this? You yeah. know, and mm-hmm. how did that make you feel? And, mm-hmm. you know, to this day, people sometimes still kind of ask like mm-hmm. why did you help him and hmm. I think you know often sometimes I think I think it says more about the person who's asking me that question or mm-hmm. making that comment and I, I've really had to kind of come to accept that people are bringing their own background sure. and maybe they have to justify which is completely understandable mm-hmm. why they cut off a relationship with a sibling mm-hmm. or a parent mm-hmm. and they're kind of seeing me through that lens mm-hmm. and you know or they did break up with someone True. so i think that's one of the things that kind of still comes up that people really navigate boundaries which are important and you know taking care of yourself with how do you help this person yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's good yeah do you want me to tell <laughs> well i don't know do you so have anything to add to do well just on the question of what still comes up today i mean maybe just the divisions within the field too yeah. and like can't yeah. we all just get along we all want the <laughs> there's best. a lot of division you know i mean uh, you know harm reduction is take one view mm, 12 sure. steppers take one view and sure. it's kind of again there's that big gray area and i think yeah. i think for me it's like who's for someone who's I relapsed a lot before I actually got, I tried so many times, I cold turkeyed, I went to detoxes, I went to rehab, none of it really worked for me, you know, and until I, the people say when you're ready, I mean, I don't know if I'd ever really been ready, but I was kind of forced into it by the criminal justice system, I was on a treatment program in a prison which really worked for me. Mm. I really embraced it and it really worked for me. It was life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. It just made me, do great counsellors there and they were really down to earth and open. It was not pampering in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. And so that really, really helped me. But I just think that, you know, we shouldn't silo ourselves. We should have mm-hmm. everything on the table. Mm-hmm. We should help people get clean needles and we should help people with any of that sort of stuff to keep them alive or to make them feel better about themselves, reduce the spread of infectious diseases and stuff like that, with the hope that, not with the expectation, but with the hope that they'll make the mm-hmm. next step and the next step. Because mm-hmm. when you hit someone with something so drastic as, well, if we're going to give you this, you have to be there in six weeks or right. 28 mm-hmm. days or something like that, that's mind-boggling to some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. If you've had yeah. years and years and years of active, active addiction and relapsed a bunch of times and seen people that that's that's a big big jump that's like asking me to break an olympic record or something Mm, it's a a huge leap Mm -hmm. so all these everything should be on the table to help people along the way and hopefully they'll get there but if they don't get there it's all right if they just get to here Mm -hmm. or here or here Mm -hmm. or here in Mm -hmm. the meantime you know it's Mm -hmm. just about having empathy and understanding that this is a complex thing this Mm -hmm. addiction and recovery is kind of complex as well, and mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. there's no quick fix for it. You know, mm-hmm. we should be willing to engage and operate in all the little nooks and crannies of mm-hmm. everything from deep addiction to to mm-hmm. recovery mm-hmm. and abstinence. That's what people want, but there are different pathways. You know, I know people who've been extreme heroin addicts, 
they've kicked heroin. They still drink or smoke weed, mm-hmm. but they don't have a problem with it, mm-hmm. and they're fine, and mm-hmm. that's good enough for them. Mm-hmm. That's fine. They're not mm-hmm. out in the street anymore. They've got a job, you know. Mm-hmm. So you know it's different things for different people mm-hmm. you know and there are obviously people who need to be totally abstinent because otherwise and i've got very close friends who that is the thing for them and that's brilliant mm-hmm. it's absolutely brilliant mm-hmm. you know just whatever little step it is that mm-hmm. helps you and gets you further down that path mm-hmm. of getting better mm-hmm. is the thing that i believe in mm-hmm. and i think graham bringing up i mean to address that too just the things that are still difficult or mm-hmm. like i don't think we've had really deep complex discussions about what abstinence is and what it Mm -hmm. means and does it mean abstinence from everything forever and you know again moving away from these binaries where maybe that needs to be more talked about Mm -hmm. you know people will tell us privately Mm -hmm. about certain things that they would never say publicly because they work in the field Mm -hmm. and this kind of abstinence in some you know respects can be seen as almost stigmatized now that Mm -hmm. you know because you know some people don't have a great experience with it mm-hmm. um, or just feel that that's too punitive, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a requirement of, you know, maybe a drug court proceeding, right. you know. So that's mm-hmm. a conversation I think that could be embraced kind of more openly and really figure out what does that mean, especially for young people mm-hmm. um, who often do just kind of age out of substance sure. use and binge yep. drinking that, you know, might happen in their early mm-hmm. 20s or adolescence. And then also the Graham didn't mention that the program he was in was a cognitive behavioral based Mm. therapy and, you know, the mental health approaches that are part of addiction treatment for many people, Mm. um, they're harder to test than medications um, are and then surgeries for people. So it's 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 a little bit understudied, I'd say, mm-hmm. to understand kind of what helps people and so hard to access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you find a therapist? Mm-hmm. Is it covered by insurance? Does right. that person have training in addiction? Um, but I think, you know, there's much more that could be done to make those approaches, behavioral health, mental health services, more available, mm-hmm. affordable, mm-hmm. and acceptable to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to come and chat with us here today. And, of course, for making the trek down here to Oxford in Mississippi. Um, We know we're not super easy to get to, so we appreciate um, uh, you all being here with us. Um, And if you all, you know, when this airs, um, folks that are listening won't have had the – hopefully will have had the chance to see the exhibition, but the exhibition won't be up anymore. Um, And so please do – we'll link – uh, to your all's website and and get those resources so folks can take a look at those um, and uh, kind of witness, you know, through the screen, um, mm-hmm. the, the power of the imagery that you all have created. And we, um, I am hopeful that we can continue this conversation mm-hmm. and that we might have you all back down here to do a class at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking that into, yeah. I know we've been talking about that for like what feels like forever, yeah. um, and, but I'm speaking it into reality, right? We're going to we're gonna have that happen and we'll have you all back down here again and, and open it up to the community because I think it would be really um, amazing mm-hmm. for, for our larger community to get to witness and, and feel what you all do firsthand. So thank you so much for making the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Great. Thank you. And that website is reframingrecovery.org. And yes, we do need to kind of update the photos. So, you know, it's like one of those things that you put together a website and then think, oh, you know, we have such great photos because we have two brilliant photographers. Well, and many more who are involved with this project. So um, hope to be able to show off the work there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab podcast. 
The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab Podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab Podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab Podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.